welcome to this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour, beautiful people. This is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. I am your host, Olga Peters, and if you're listening to one of our audio versions, you're listening on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. And if you're listening to us on video or listening to us, watching us on video, you will probably see that, unfortunately, my co-host and regular contributor, Emily Kornheiser, is not here today because she had something she needed to take care of for her legislative work. But uh, send her good thoughts, and she will be back next week. I believe we'll be speaking with the Secretary of State. And I want to welcome to the show for today's conversation, Sherry, who is an advocate with the Women's Freedom Center. The Women's Freedom Center is our local domestic and sexual violence organization. It serves people of all genders in Wyndham and Southern Windsor counties. Just for anyone watching the video, you may notice that uh, Sherry has a logo on the screen instead of her image. And that is because for advocate safety, they don't appear on camera or use their last name. So if you were wondering why that is, that is why that is. The organization turns 50 this year, and Sherry is here to discuss how the organization has evolved over its five decades and share some of the events it has planned for 2024. But first, Sherry, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, Olga, thanks so much for having me on the air. I wanted to start with this question. You know, as I was putting together materials for today's show, I I went back and forth like, do I call this a celebration? Do I call this a reflection? Given all the work you do and the work you do with people who are surviving domestic and sexual abuse, 50 years seems like a really long time and it's a little sad. And yet I know 1974 is not 2024. And so that things have changed. Help us understand that. What, how, are, how are you at the Women's Freedom Center viewing these 50 years? First of all, thank you so much for that beautiful springboard <laughs> of a question because, yeah, that is really a profound, pivotal place, right? Even that that very word there. And we, you know, interestingly, in preparing for these kinds of conversations this year, are looking back even to the language we used when we turned 40, right? It's not It's not a celebration per se. It's more a commemoration, I would mm. say. Right. It's 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 kind of holding the mix. Absolutely. You know, we know and we honor that there are so many things to celebrate. And you're right. You know, looking back to 1974, we know we have so much gratitude that we owe to our foremothers and allies and so much inspiration. We continue to draw from them and strength and all of that. But frankly, <laughs> we would love to put ourselves out of business. I mean that in the sense of the hotlines going quiet, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, we know this is a moment. And so we use the word commemorate, but we also, you know, want to celebrate the amazing activism that's gotten us here. We want to honor the remarkable strength and courage and healing that has happened that is to survivors credit and allies credit. So there is a lot to celebrate, but you know, the bigger picture is if we really zoom out, we still have quite a long way to go. And so that's ultimately how we're approaching this year as 
an opportunity, right? To say thanks and recognize how far we've come, but also to ask the question in as many ways as we can, what does half a century teach us about what survivors are still up against and what we're all still up against trying to end domestic and sexual violence and help create a better world for all of us? Thank you, Sherry. For those who may not be familiar with the Women's Freedom Center, what was your origin story? You know, this this is heartwarming to us, certainly, right, in all the ways. And I think it's it's profound, too, to keep in mind that the Women's Freedom Center, I'm sure like many of the almost 2,000 sister programs around the country, began in probably a similar way. We're not unique at all, although every program is unique. But ours, just to kind of wind back to 1974, the Freedom Center, um, which folks probably still remember the original name, Women's Crisis Center, it began as a rape crisis center, actually, or that was the intent. It began as, you know, a Me Too movement back then, mm-hmm. based on the number of sexual assaults that had been happening and being reported in Brattleboro. And that's, I think, what's so poignant to keep in mind, you know, that first, even naming this problem was a revolutionary act, right? Hence the name crisis in the original name. It was still revolutionary to come out of homes and share this with anybody out in the community. And here we are on various platforms, right? And hooray for that. But that's, you know, again, that's sort of the reminder. It just sort of underscores how far we come because initially those first four mothers had to break this vast historic silence. Mm. Countless generations before had experienced domestic and sexual violence, and there was maybe no one to tell, right? Likely no one to tell. And they likely had nowhere to go from that, let's say, intimate partner relationship. And so that might have been their whole biography was determined in many ways that they had nowhere to go and stayed and had no place to go from that. So it's, you know, an overused word, but I think it, it it's applicable here. It's pretty epic that they came and put that out there. And so literally went from the homes out into the streets, from, you know, vigils into the news, all of that. That's so profound. And, you know, I get chills sometimes thinking about that what it took. (laughs) So I'm going to pause there because I would love to hear your thoughts about that. You know, what it brings me back to is a conversation we had on another radio show might have been for the 40th anniversary, but we were talking about society and how society changes. And you said something really beautiful about the pendulum swinging that when a society is going through a change, the pendulum might be up here, you know, that total silence. Mm -hmm. And then it might have to swing over here. And then eventually when the change is complete, the pendulum is, you know, has reached equilibrium. And that can take decades Mm -hmm. or, or generations even. And I go back to that thought a lot because sometimes it can feel like change is not happening or it's happening in a direction that we'd rather it didn't go. And I have to admit that has given me a lot of trust and faith over the years when when I'm sitting there biting my fingernails. But for you, when you think of that, I, that thought of that pendulum swinging, 
Do you have any sense on where it might be in its trajectory? Mm. You know, I think that we could look at any social justice movement, right? Or I would say any really long work in progress, it builds on some kind of vision and revision. Anyway, that back and forth, the pendulum on the promising note, right? Because as that pendulum swings, we also face, and I would say in this movement, a surprising level of backlash, mm. right? And that's the pendulum swinging. And we see it in our in our culture. We see it where we are now, and not just in this social justice movement, but in so many social justice movements. And, you know, so appreciate what you said earlier in terms of it taking generations. Yes, yeah, centuries, right? Look at, look at the work for racial justice, right? We have such a long, we have come such a long way. And we can see based on the backlash, we still have a long, long way to go. And I would say, you know, solidarity is is, is how we move forward collectively. But in terms of this work, you know, what gives me hope here is that every year, every few years, there are more allies that see the intersectional sort of impact um, mm -hmm. roots of what survivors are up against, what we're all still up against, and how we need to band together and have each other's backs across different, you know, I'm going to say different in quotes here, since I'm not on camera, social justice movements, they are one big social justice movement, right? These are all, and we can get to this in the second half of the show, but they're they're all sort of this, this long quest for freedom, you know, mm -hmm. and they're all aiming at freedom stories. And so in our work, you know, we've seen it even just in very recent times, the tension between amazing progress. There are so many competing narratives in our culture that as we inch forward in terms of, let's say, unpacking the gender box, the backlash pulls us even more shockingly back in some places, in some states. And so I think what we're feeling is the tension the farther ahead we maybe move on this trajectory pulling us back, right? And there are more competing voices now. And, you know, once upon a time, again, in air quotes here, we didn't hear so much of that because it wasn't even possible to go out there and say it. So at least the progress is that people are able to be out there talking about this, but the backlash they face is also problematic, you know? So that's a very long answer to a very vast, you know, social justice topic, obviously. 50 years of the Freedom Center, but how many centuries, millennia of patriarchy, you know? Mm. So we have to kind of we have to kind of keep the if the farther out we we zoom on the timeline can help give us some perspective. You know, mm -hmm. backlash, any you know, power does not hand itself over, hand the reins over without the fight. So right. Right. Yeah. I always think of power almost as an organism and you know how an organism that's immune system goes crazy if it feels threatened and it starts attacking just like an immune system. might. that's, you know, I would say that is such a brilliant analogy, right? Like the, the overcorrect, you know, and I would say in terms of social justice movements, whether you're talking about patriarchy or white supremacy, it was an illegitimate power to begin with. 
And so mm-hmm. the reaction and overreaction is to holding on to what was illegitimate power to begin with, because it, you know, there may be power dynamics in all kinds of ways. So it isn't, it isn't strictly power. I would say it's the abuse of power, whether that's in an intimate partner relationship or zooming out in the culture systemically, it's that abuse of power. It's that willingness to just keep a bias alive and, you know, benefit from it. Hmm. Thank you. I'll share this for what it's worth. Some folks know that I practice feng shui and uh, like it very much. And with the the Lunar New Year coming up, been delving back into that again. And there's a couple concepts in feng shui around wealth and friends and kind of the the quality of life issues that we have in our in our life. And two of them are around power and one is called aggressive power and one is called proper power. And unfortunately, aggressive power is kind of what you're talking about, Sherry, you know, the abuse of power, power over, power under, you know, having to have power over someone else, using manipulation, using coercion, those sorts of things. And then proper power is is what we should probably strive for. And yet many of us don't. And that's respect and honesty and trust and treating people fairly. And like I said, with respect, when it comes to the Freedom Center and its its own evolution, you know, even the change of the, the name that was made from the Crisis Center to the Freedom Center, are there ways that the Freedom Center itself has evolved in its own understanding of domestic and sexual violence? I would say yes, hopefully, right? For sure. And, you know, going back to even how you frame the question, one of the first places we began with that, I mean, it's it's a, it's an ongoing evolution, as we talked about, right? The pendulum swinging, learning to see and listening, I would say, listening to survivors, right? We work from the central point that survivors are the experts in their own lives. And so, you know, always just hearing their sort of wisdom and ideas and what they're willing to share informs us, informs us in the work. But getting back to sort of language, you know, recognizing that language has power and the way we think about something, what we call something, has an enormous ripple effect in terms of how it's understood in the culture, how it's treated in the culture. And we certainly, in the name change, that was a huge part of it. And there, you know, not everybody was in favor of that name change initially, right? That was some of the most, and and a lot of that conversation predates my time at the Freedom Center even, but the conversations, you know, have continued. But I think if we look at it culturally, initially to come out from the privacy of of people's homes, the word crisis had momentum. It had energy to it. It actually finally named what was really going on and that this wasn't personal, Um, really again, right? The personal is political, but that it was societal. And so Mm. calling it a crisis had momentum to it, right? It really alerted people, but there can come a time where you know, okay, you know, every year there's Domestic Violence Awareness Month and Sexual Violence Awareness Month. There can come a time where people are so aware that they're saturated that we need to wake that language back up. 
And so putting the word freedom in there was to have people not just read kind of crisis as stasis or, oh yeah, there's always going to be like a crisis center. Well, actually, no, <laughs> none of this is inevitable. Domestic and sexual violence aren't natural. Those are learned behaviors. Those are taught behaviors, right? So we need to be at both ends with learning and the unlearning that needs to happen. And so we, we really wanted to highlight survivors aren't looking to just get out of crisis. What, what's that? You know, that's, that's not much. We really want to underscore what they've always aimed at, um, what every human deserves, and that's freedom. And so to have it not just kind of plateau in this kind of crisis center place, we had to bring momentum back to the language and the very collective we, and again, predating even my time at the Freedom Center. And I have so much appreciation for that spirit that the Freedom Center operates in, that we examine sort of how we approach things and we know we don't have it all figured out, right? And the culture adapts. What survivors are up against, it's, you know, it's challenging because in some ways what survivors are up against, there are many, many different options for them now, hooray, and yet there's still some age-old thinking that they're up against and that's what's difficult. And new challenges, right? I mean, social media, et cetera, just our culture is so different. So we have to try to stay nimble and humble and listen to what's happening and bring in new voices and, 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 right? Mm. I would love to hear more about, because you've mentioned backlash at the beginning of the show. And just now you talk about some of the age-old thinking I would love to hear some examples of that. Oh, my goodness. That could fill <laughs> the entire show, but we won't let it. You know, I think as, you know, as I just mentioned, especially in terms of the supports that are still available that are now available to survivors and I don't just mean programs. I mean mm -hmm. other awesome humans in their lives, friends and family, there's definitely more support to help survivors get out to help survivors try to heal. That's a long journey. But I think some of the most pressing questions still haven't changed in our culture, right? What will it take to create a culture where violence is no longer tolerated? That's a biggie. And certainly in the wake of Me Too, you know, what is our culture? Why does our culture still struggle with consent mm -hmm. and unwanted sexual behavior, right? the question marks just kind of ripple out there. Like there's, there's a lot that, as I said, we're still up against with the, the competing narratives, lots of progress, lots of fabulous inspired activism and learning in schools and every generation of new parents bringing something hopefully more evolved to their kiddos. But then we're still up against some of that same age old thinking coexisting. And that's what we really have to tackle. Mm -hmm. We have about five minutes before we'll head to break to hear from some of our underwriters. And I just want to poke at that age-old thinking a little bit more, if you'll indulge me, Sherry, because I'm wondering for all of us out there, you and me in this conversation, anyone who's listening to this conversation, what we might be holding on to that because it's the water we swim in, we don't realize might be contributing 
to things like you, you, you mentioned, like not seeking consent or domestic violence or why people stay or leave uh, violent partners. Any myths you want to bust before we go to break? Yeah, I mean, I, I love that you're going there, right? Because that's part of it's woven into all of our work, whether it's individually with survivors themselves or out in community conversations myth busting is still a huge part of it. And so, you know, I think, again, the, the greatest challenge around all of this isn't as much learning as it is unlearning. And, you know, why? Because violence starts in the mind, in the mindset, in the attitudes, in the sense of entitlement that feed these epidemics, you know. And I'd say, ultimately, what we have to get to the root of is this legacy of gender, that we are all inherited as human beings, right? Everywhere on earth, right? That really still serves the same old agenda. And, you know, here we are at 50, but we, that's what we have to uproot, I think, because it keeps replicating the same social traumas. And so, you know, super quickly, here we are now with way more support to help the individual survivor get out. Hooray, we want that. And if that partner decides to partner again. And if their next partner is healthy, they're never going to have domestic violence in their lives again, because they're not bringing that to the table. It, it's impossible. The victim doesn't cause the person causing harm, but it's a serial behavior, right? And so that abusive person is then going to go on almost inevitably, unless there's a lot of deep soul searching and change to unlearn, to harm the next and the next and the next partner, right? Mm -hmm. That's why we still have the statistics we have. It's not that most, let's say, you know, again, all, we work with all genders, but it's not that most men are harming their partners. They're not. It's that the ones who are, if it's a straight couple, or even, I'd say, you know, again, we work with same-sex partners as well. It's that the ones who are, are doing it to pretty much every partner they're with unless they do some deep soul searching and some real unpacking and unlearning and are held accountable. And there's a course correct, not just from that survivor getting away, but from the culture demanding, you know, accountability from that person. So that's what we're up against, right? In way back, um, that same person, it, you know, it maybe was a one-to-one -one ratio because they're one initial partner had nowhere to go through their lifespan. But now, you know, they abusive humans. <laughs> and I'd say mostly, again, we see men as the abusers in these contexts because we work with their female partners. But across the spectrum, they don't tend to stay single super long. You know, it's not uncommon that we have worked or maybe are working with several partners of the same person the shorter their relationships get because that person, their current partner is like, you know, I'm out of here. I'm done with this. If they're already on to the next person at that point, because they need someone in that quote, less than me position, we now have more people impacted by the same abusive partner because the root we have not yet as a, as a culture been able to uproot that thinking. And so I really appreciate you starting with those myths because it really, again, that violence starts in the mind. That's why we try to embrace both the learning and the unlearning ends of this social justice conversation. Thank you for, for that, Sherry. And I really appreciate you talking about the mindset and violence starting in the mind, because I think one of our cultural narratives 
is that someone either is or is not a violent person, which may or may not be true, but also that violence is like comes out of nowhere or it's a force or it's a breaking point. We don't tend to talk about it as starting in our own minds. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the myths that's still out there and perpetuated in large part by abusers themselves, and any of us may hold this myth, the survivor may stay in a relationship way longer and suffer way longer if they have been taught the myth and internalized it, right? It is really an inside job to liberate ourselves from these myths. And so, you know, one of the myths that's out there is that the abusive person is just sort of temporarily out of control or it's because of substances or mental illness or their bad childhood. Certainly, you know, some of those factors can make the situation way more dangerous. There's no question, but they're not causal. They're not causal. It is a choice. And we have to really keep a laser focus on someone is choosing to behave that way because they think they can. Every once in a while, there's an abuser, you know, person causing harm. This may be a, a way bigger threat to many people in their lives at the same time, to coworkers, to people out in public. But that is really not common. That is the exception. For the most part, they have in their mind, they're entitled to behind closed doors, maybe harm their partner, maybe their kids, mm -hmm. right? That behind closed doors, this is how they can treat people, but they may be stellar community members. You know, right. we hear all that. That's what's so tricky to navigate. And we, so that's one of the myths we really want to debunk is that the abuser is not just temporarily out of control. It's the opposite. Mm -hmm. They are obsessed with staying in control. And that's why the risk level when the survivor tries to get out goes up dramatically. It's because they're finally saying, you know, I'm not going to live like this anymore. It's when they think they're losing control that they get more dangerous. So they're, it's not that they're out of control. They're just obsessed with staying in it. Sherry, thank you. We need to end there and head to break to hear from some of our underwriters here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. But stay close. We will return in a moment. Welcome back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you're just joining us, I am your host and producer of the show, Olga Peters, and I'm speaking with Sherry from the Women's Freedom Center today. Unfortunately, Emily had a conflict of her schedule and can't join us, but of course, stay tuned. She will be back next week. As always, we want to thank Brattleboro Community Television for all its help in getting the video version of our show up to the media centers across Vermont and even a few in New England. So thank you. And since Emily's not here, I shall remind you all that the views and opinions on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the hosts and the guests and no one else not the pets, not the family members, not the employers, 
not the platforms that this is shared on, all of that. So without further ado, let's rejoin our conversation with Sherry from the Women's Freedom Center as we talk about the implications of this organization, which is the local domestic and sexual violence organization that serves people of all genders in Wyndham County and Southern Windsor County. It's turning 50 years old. Like, wow. Sherry, I am so happy you're here. Thank you for having this conversation today. I would love to hear a little bit more of what your work looks like in the the areas that you serve, you know, because I think for a lot of people, violence, domestic violence, sexual violence, like you said in the first half, happens behind closed doors. And I think a lot of people can go through their lives and, and just not think about it, but it is happening. Give us a snapshot, please, if you don't mind. Yeah, uh, I mean, that is a great place to start this part of the conversation, right? I think one of the things we want to highlight is that even if it's not happening to us personally, every single one of us knows survivors in our lives, whether we know that about them or not. For example, one in three women has experienced domestic or sexual violence or will at some point in their lives. So you think about that, right? Mm -hmm. We are surrounded by, always have been, have been surrounded by survivors and are, even if it's not happening to us, ourselves. So that's one sad fact. <laughs> the other, and just to give some sort of local context here, you know, I can tell you last year alone, by that I mean fiscal year, the Women's Freedom Center supported 656 survivors and their 440 kids. And again, we serve Wyndham and Southern Windsor counties. Although like all programs around the country, sometimes the survivors that come to us have fled from elsewhere because they needed to for safety. And we as well will help survivors that are not safe in our community. They may be safe somewhere further in Vermont, perhaps, or they may need to get somewhere farther away. So that can look all kinds of ways, but those are just some local numbers. We sheltered 144 people and, you know, that length of stay could be anywhere from a couple of days to a couple of weeks, but much more commonly, it's been a number of months or longer because of the challenge of finding affordable housing, uh, even in quote, the best of times, whenever those were, but, you know, Anybody that in addition to the, the economic challenges of finding affordable housing in our community also has had to flee an unsafe situation and is still in, you know, acute trauma, it just makes it that much more challenging. And so those are some numbers. We responded to over 1,900 hotline calls in the last fiscal year alone and provided thousands of hours of individual and group support advocacy within all systems that a survivor might encounter, financial assistance, legal assistance, you name it. Those are some of the numbers. And, you know, once again, we're, we're not unique in that. 2,000 similar programs around the country, you know, on average get about 20,000 hotline calls a day. So it's happening. It's all around us, all around us. It just doesn't necessarily make the headlines or the news, unless it's really the far end of the trauma spectrum, usually, mm. right? For all kinds of reasons, we don't even have time to unpack here, but 
those are some of the numbers. So, and, and you know, the other really sobering truth about this and that we know is that the violence doesn't always stay at home when the survivor or victim leaves the house, right? And all the ways domestic violence ripples out into our culture, into our community, into public spaces, into workspaces, we're actually all downstream of the fact that there's domestic violence happening. Just because it's happening kind of more behind closed doors doesn't mean it's not a community issue that's rippling out in all directions. Mm -hmm. You know, one phrase and, and concept that the Freedom Center works with that I'll admit I needed to sit with a little bit before I could see the the wisdom in it is this concept that the survivor is the expert in their own lives, right? And so whatever they need to do, whatever they choose to do, for example, leave a relationship or stay in a relationship, that they're the experts and so we need to trust them in the in their choices and especially since our recent elections and the upcoming elections and the decision around Roe v. Wade I've really been sitting with that concept a lot because I realize how much in our society we don't necessarily trust women to make choices for themselves but also how important it is when you have gone through a traumatic event and you have had so much of your your own agency taken away to be able to trust yourself again and to tr be able to trust the world around you for for others to to trust your choices if if that makes sense and so i i just want to comment on how powerful that practice is from the freedom center but I would love you to expand on it too. When we we talk about, or, or you and I off camera have talked about survivors and that healing can happen. So that's kind of what I'm sitting with. I would love if you could expand on that at all. I'm still sitting with just how poignant everything you just said is. Thank you for that. And we appreciate that as the Freedom Center for sure. And I would say, you know, lifting from what you just said, that has made the part about trusting, believing women, trusting women to have bodily agency, all of that, right? The roots of misogyny that try to deny that are made even more clear in situations around domestic violence in some ways, right? There are so many added layers. So everything you just said, the baseline, right? Yeah. Look, it, it, there's still, it's hard to come forward because it's such a, a blaming and shaming culture, especially to survivors, right? Especially to victims of these particular kind of gender-based crimes in particular. Even the word victim has you know, gotten a cultural taint to it. So people don't want to, and, and hence, you know, people often wanting to righteously claim, you know, I'm a survivor, not a victim, because the culture um, is not often compassionate around somebody coming forward. But then in terms of gender, because of the, the credibility being questioned of when especially women come forward, but any survivor, there's that. But then you add the overlay of domestic violence and the quote, you know, the, the sort of fallback 
sometimes from people of why don't they just leave? Why doesn't she just leave, right? Getting back to the root of what you mentioned. In addition to all that taking away of women's autonomy that's in the wider culture, within an abusive relationship, that's the goal, right? Power and control is at the heart of all the tactics of an abuser right there. So within that relationship, that's already happened. And then if the wider culture is also still telling people, you should do this, you should do that. You know, why don't you do this? If I were in your shoes, I would have done that. People don't necessarily know. And even advocates don't necessarily know all of the minute to minute nuances that a survivor is having, you know, it can be a landmine that they are walking through. And so adding domestic violence into the mix as well, people, for instance, there's, you know, kind of this myth out there sometimes that sooner is safer in getting out. That may not be true, right? And so the, the survivor themselves, unless they have had hopefully support or been able to come up with a fairly, you know, solid stepping stone as their next step out of their situation and aren't immediately about to get caught or found, biding their time a little bit longer for the better opportunity, the safer opportunity to actually land on a solid footing can be safer. And we need to trust that. We need to trust from within that the survivor is the only one that has the inside view and knows the abuser intimately enough to say, you know what, I it's going to need to wait for this particular day or time. That's what we mean by trusting survivors are the experts, you know, in the moment to moment, often they're seeing it, but then just as humans, right, get to decide how they want their life to go. And, and I would say leaving, you know, we know this across the culture, leaving is very often not just a one-time done, done. That happens. There are definitely survivors who maybe have the resources and the supports and the emotional wherewithal to just, boom, I'm out of here. That definitely happens. Kudos, right? But every survivor's healing journey is unique. And so for many survivors, it's a process and there may be a few times of going back. And I think the average can be seven times, right? And that could be they leave for the weekend and come back and they, you know, they are either sweet talk back in and they want to give it another try because this is their love and the father of the kids and all those things, right? But there's so much more in our culture, getting back to the survivors being the experts of their own lives. There's so much more judgment on survivors and their choices than on the pressures that are on women and survivors right? We want to focus, what are the pressures? What are the barriers to getting out? And that's where we hope folks, you know, take these conversations is the pause moment. Like how can we support survivors in the process of trying to get out a big we, not just freedom centers, but all of us that, mm -hmm. that, are, that know that survivor that know the one in three are the, yeah, one in three that are out there. <laughs> so you mentioned housing as often a barrier for survivors. Um, what are some of the other barriers that people may run into? Oh my gosh. You know, I would say we try to keep this, you know, the, why don't they just leave? We really try to keep the focus on the whole emotional kind of spectrum here. First of all, it's hard to leave any relationship once we're in it or fall in love or, you know, 
use whatever <laughs> sort of word fits, people don't usually just like turn on a dime from that. And, and the other thing we want to keep in mind here, too, is that the abusive person, you know, they don't start out swinging on the first date. Of course, they would never get a second one. There has typically been a pretty careful kind of grooming process mm -hmm. to hide what's up ahead or the true colors till there's enough connection, enough bond or enough dependence, financial or otherwise, so that can be part of it. So resources, you know, finances, supporting kids can be right there in the middle. The same challenges that anyone might face, especially if there were, are kids involved, can keep someone there. But so love, right, for sure, like, uh, that's one end of the spectrum. But all the way at the more sort of glaring end of the spectrum is fear, right? So often what we work with, of course, is the danger of leaving, right? Mm -hmm. Leaving tends to be the most dangerous time for survivors. And for good reason, people are, are afraid, right? Because again, the danger of the risk of homicide goes up enormously at that point in time. And so you think about the wide spectrum from fear, which is completely justified, fear, death threats, all of it that may be included, to love and then everything in between. It's enormous. It's enormous. And yet, you know, again, spotlight being on just this healing is our superpower as humans, right? When we're able to get there and, and the fact that people do, that's what we want to honor. By and large, survivors, if they have enough of the supports around them in their lives, lean toward healing and eventually try and for the most part are able to eventually get out now in ways that maybe they weren't not always and there's no judgment but you know the the curve bends towards healing and towards freedom for survivors people you know they have other options eventually many not most will get there mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about healing. I know that some of the events coming up that the Freedom Center has planned throughout 2024 will be focusing on healing, but what else do you want the community to know about um, survivors and the healing process? Oh, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've even said in individually to survivors one-on-one -on -one and in our support group, Wow, I just wish that even, you know, keeping anonymity here, that people in the community could hear what you just said, right? So much of the most remarkable wisdom that we hear comes from survivors themselves, mm -hmm. right? So if they, and, and we hope to make more occasions like this available to survivors and, you know, everyone's healing journey is unique. We honor everyone's healing journey and the time it takes them to get to whatever feels like freedom for them if they're able to. So we, we honor that. And certainly activism is not part of everyone's choice for healing their healing journey, nor should it be right. It really needs to be personal, but I will say certainly the most lasting reward of our work always comes from seeing survivors reclaim their lives again in whatever way, you know, and have a sense of joy and promise in their lives. Again, getting past just getting out of crisis, but getting to freedom. That's the best part of our job. And, you know, just the fact, like I said, you know, the fact that people do lean in that direction. And so one of the 
events that is very close to my heart here is this invitation for folks to join us in a year-long creative project. And, you know, we figured what better way to mark half a century of activism than to invite really expert testimony on this quest for freedom and healing and all these journeys that are different but pointing in the same direction. And so what we're creating or co-creating is a, a freedom banner. And the name of this project is Healing Happens, 50 Years of Freedom Stories, What's Yours? And it's an invitation for folks. It can be a few words, a few paragraphs if they want, anonymous or not, on paper or online, for folks to give a snapshot in whatever way it speaks to them to highlight some of their own unique healing journey on paper, again, as I said, or online. But then this is open to every survivor in our community who has ever experienced domestic or sexual violence or sex trafficking, and we really welcome reflections across the decades. So that includes even adults who maybe grew up with domestic violence as kids, even if they did not live in Vermont. You know, often, aside from the fact that survivors may not wanna come forward for all kinds of reasons about their healing journey, it's pretty heroic to try to heal in a culture that's still so unhealthy itself, mm -hmm. right? But usually very often quietly survivors go on that journey and it, it may have surprised them, their own strength and wisdom. Uh, it's likely not public knowledge. And so, you know, as advocates, we get such a rare privilege um, to hear just so many brilliant, unforgettable stories over time, but survivors themselves don't often hear those stories from each other or just see or hear how welcome, even life-changing their own healing wisdom can be in our wider community. So we want to stitch some of their own words together. So we're creating this banner where people can participate. It's going to start being public starting March. The, the painted backdrop for this is going to be a river because we want to highlight, well, obviously, you know, trauma um, and the hard stuff, you know, makes more of the news, but there's definitely a current of healing that flows through the community too. So we're using a river, a painted river as a backdrop and all of these various ways people participate, it's going to be added to this banner and then be available just as a public and private source of courage really for all of us. So that, I'm going to let you jump in there. <laughs> so that's one of the projects. That's fantastic. And so that becomes public in March. And where will it be located so people can find it? It'll begin growing visibly because we'll be taking submissions. We're already taking submissions now. Eventually, the, the two currents are going to be put together. But so okay. um, Zephyr Design on Main Street in Brattleboro and Experience Goods on Flat Street, again, in Brattleboro. But we welcome submissions for this from across, you know, our catchment area. And it'll, you know, people can watch it grow uh, in the beginning. So we welcome that. And any questions, let me just put it in here for any of the things we talk about that are open to folks, by all means, give us a call. We can talk more about how you can get involved as a survivor, as a community member. Our office number is 802-257-7364. Be happy to talk with you more about that. What are some of the other events we you have coming up for 2024? 
Well, I'm glad you asked. So a little bit closer, probably to the summer, we will have, and this is open for survivors and allies alike, a training that we call Uprise with an exclamation point as part of the name. And it's a standalone training, first and foremost, for community members that want to get sort of work on skills and have some support around how to be an empowered bystander be able to spot signs that somebody is maybe in trouble, whether that's domestic violence, sexual violence, sexual harassment, all of that, right? So it can be a standalone. There's, I mean, there's no obligation. There can be the option from that to become part of kind of an outreach collaborative and help us with our activism, with our education and outreach. So those are two things in the summer. Again, that's Uprise. It's again, open to all genders. There will be some survivor gatherings to actually help with the healing banner. And those will be, you know, hopefully super supportive with some music and food and advocates available. So people don't have to just sort of in, in you know, these they'll start seeing these colorful boxes where they could just anonymously add some thoughts about their healing journey, but they can also join us and do those. So both of those, then in the fall, in September, we're going to host, we know that this is a very you know, life-changing election year to say the least that we're up against. So building towards the fall, we are going to have a solidarity bonfire open to all, I would say all social justice activists, even from other kinds of causes, all united there. And that is to spotlight kind of, you know, personal and collective healing power of just activism itself. It's never been easy to be an activist in our culture, but I, I I think it's fair to say like this past stretch of years qualify as some of the toughest in our own lifetimes. And so that will be kind of a social justice booster shot maybe for all of us in the fall and in October. And this is kind of the drum roll here. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, but it's also going to be where we unveil this completed freedom banner with whatever submissions we get. And we're going to have a fabulous, um, and this will be a celebration, right? A gala. And that's to celebrate the activism and that, and, and our 50th anniversary, right? And so that is going to include a feminist costume contest. It's going to include some dancing. We're going to highlight kind of, this is what activists would have been dancing to in the seventies, in the eighties, right? We're going to really, that is going to be really upbeat and celebratory in October. And before um, the election, we'll also host a community-wide kind of conversation so that folks can jump in to this conversation you and I are having and weigh in on what do we still need to be doing as a culture, right? And so those are just a few. And I know that's like a really fast brush sweep through the year. But again, you know, give us a call if you're interested or have questions. Again, that number 802-257-7364. We'd love to give you more information. The other thing is you can find out more and, you know, participate in the healing banner on our website, womensfreedomcenter.net, or get on our email list that way, get our, you know, soon to be launched newsletter. So there's lots of ways to find out about how to get involved as well. Follow us on Facebook is another great one. Thank you. So we are just out about out of time. Sherry, any last minute thoughts you want to leave listeners with before we wrap up? Mm, gosh, well, first, you know, I want to thank you and your thoughtful activist inspired questions. It's such a pleasure to have these conversations, right? And, and to be asked these already 
incredibly thoughtful and meaningful questions in the first place. And they're the ones, you know, I'm so grateful that this is a wider medium than advocates 50 years and before that ever had access to, right? Mm -hmm. And we want to bring more folks into these conversations. We want to hear people's thinking. So that's one. And then just underscore two, you know, the Women's Freedom Center never could do this work alone. And thankfully, we never have over these 50 years plus, right? We're so grateful to this generous community. We also, for you know, creative folks out there, we are super grateful when you reach out to us. And this has always happened, but also, especially this 50th year, if you've got some creative fundraising ideas, give us a call. We have a development coordinator who would love to hear from you. If you have an idea for a benefit to help mark this 50th anniversary, we invite everyone's creative thinking into where we go from year 50 to year 51, you know? So um, just deep thanks. Before we head out, I believe the Freedom Center also has a, a crisis hotline. Do you want to share that with folks? Absolutely. Thank you. So that is 802-254-6954. And that's 24-7, completely confidential. People don't have to give us their real names. We are available for individual safety planning and to have that conversation where we start with where that person is. Thank you, Sherry, uh, for joining us today and for sharing the work of the Women's Freedom Center and its commemorating of 50 years. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in today. As always, the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Broadboro. Your community radio station airs Friday at 2 p.m. as well as rebroadcasted on Wednesday mornings. And you can find us wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Have a great weekend, everybody. Mm-hmm.